in uh, chapters 11 through 14, Paul deals with uh, the disorder uh, in the public assembly, in the church. The meetings were, uh, their meetings were pretty chaotic and unbiblical. Um, various members, you know, uh, Pastor Jay started, uh, mentioned uh, one thing, you know, various members were competing for leadership and also they were looking for opportunity to speak in the midst of people. Um, there was unsolicited uh, uh, prophesying and speaking in tongues without interpretation in the middle of the service. And, um, you know, women trying to just uh, have authority over men. And so there was confusion. And it was a poor testimony to the non-Christians as well. Imagine a non-Christian attending the service. And in the middle of the service, maybe there was a, uh, an apostle or a teacher speaking right, during the, the sermon time. And then people, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody would stand up and start busting out with prophesying. It's like, oh, you know, you know I, I believe that the Lord is speaking, uh, saying this to all of us, you, you. And they start you know, just speaking over the teacher who is, about to, uh, who is uh, giving a message. So can you imagine in the middle of it, as I'm just speaking right now, in the middle of it, you know, somebody like Joe would just speak up and then just kind of disrupt the message because he has word from the Lord, right? Or somebody or other people in the middle of the service, right? Maybe uh, as we are praying quietly or something, uh, reflecting, repenting or, and whatnot, all of a sudden somebody starts, you know, speaking in tongues and, oh, and just goes off. And there is no interpretation. People have no idea what he's saying. It's, you know, and... Um, it's, it's very disorderly when, can you imagine a worship service like that? When people just, just impromptu, right? Spontaneously speaking out things. It cannot really just have a proper and orderly worship. So Paul emphasizes that God is a God of order and says that God has laid down structures uh, in, in terms of governance and also the principle of headship um, and authority uh, in, the uh, in the church. And verses 1 through uh, 16 uh, talk about that. And uh, in today's passage, now Paul turns his attention to disorder at the Lord's Supper. You know, before the pandemic, we, uh, we have been, you know, we've been having the, the Lord's Supper or, or communion once a month. And, you know, some of us may, have, may not have given much thought about, this, uh, about its significance. It's something that we do every, week, every month. And without proper understanding, it may seem like a time filler. Why are we doing this? I mean, we take a small piece of wafer, and we take a small dinky cup, and then we just wait for everybody to take them, and then we just all, all uh, at the same time, take it together and gulp it down. And that is that, right? Why are we doing this? This passage provides us with instruction, with a stern warning and consequences of desecrating or mistreating this sacrament. We are not to, one thing for sure, even from a casual reading of this passage, one thing is sure, that we are not to take it lightly. Ignorance and shallow understanding of the sacrament leads to disorder and a sacrilege. So the first part that, uh, that I want to uh, 
cover is the meaning, the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the meaning of the communion. Contrasting verse 2, because in verse 2 it says, Now I commend you because you have remembered, uh, uh, you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So, you know, he starts off by just commending and the the Corinthians, but contrasting this verse too, now Paul addresses the seriousness of this problem with the Lord's Supper for their ignorance and shallow understanding. In verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Even though they think they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, observing the Lord's Supper, it was for the worse, not for the better. What is the Lord's Supper? What is the communion? Right. You know, in essence, it is an act of worship, taking the form of a ceremonial, uh, ceremonial like meal, where the followers, where the followers of Christ share bread and wine to commemorate uh, his uh, his death and to celebrate the new covenant. That uh, in the body, uh, in the body, uh, in, uh, that, in, that the new covenant relationship that we have, that we enjoy with God, right? That is what the Lord's Supper is. And you know, Westminster Confession, uh, back in the days, uh, they have come up. And so you know, because it is, uh, if we can just turn to that uh, uh, definition, because I cannot say any better. So this is a significance. Okay, so that's what the, the Lord's Supper is. But what is its significance, right? Um, if you can turn there. Our Lord Jesus in the night wherein he was betrayed instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. I know it's, um, so, you know, a West, a Westminster uh, Confession, it really just lays down the significance it is to remember the sacrifice that Christ has uh, uh, just made on our behalf. And as we celebrate, as we observe this sacrament together, we are in communion with him. And we just, um, and we, you know, by, it's an expression of faith, faith saying that we receive all the, the benefits that, God, that Christ has accomplished for us, that our reconciliation with God that the, uh, the, the in, uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that God has really just defeated the power of, uh, of sin, that now we can indeed live a life uh, in victory. Right? And all these things, that now we are making an expression. Every time that we come together, we are confirming that God has accomplished all this, and now we enjoy all the benefits, and that now we are one with Him, and now we are one with each other that we are one body in Christ as people who believe in the same thing, right? So that's what is signifying. You know, John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of, bread of life and the need to feed on him, that I am the bread of life. 
that we are to just feed on Christ. You know, as a Protestants, uh, for those of you guys who may know, who, who, we are Protestants, right? We are not Catholics. So unlike the Catholics, we understand the Lord's Supper in terms of spiritual significance, right? Communion with Christ by our faith. That's what it really symbolizes. Rather than the Lord's Supper itself being, uh, the, the significance being about the supper itself. The Catholics, they think it is all about the actual supper, right? The act of like uh, taking the bread and the cup together. But we believe that as we observe the Lord's Supper, there is a deeper, it's, it's about really spiritual significance that the presence of Christ is with us spiritually, right? You know, at the time of Reformation, questions about the nature of Christ's presence uh, in the Supper raised a lot of controversy, right? Because Jesus said, right, this is my body, right? And this is my blood, so now, how are we to understand that? When we, you know, Jesus said, you know, as even among the 12 disciples, this is my body, this is my blood. So how are we to understand it? Is Jesus really there? We all agree that Jesus is indeed there every time we observe the Lord's Supper. Is Jesus saying the bread and wine are literally the, his flesh and blood? We do not really believe that as Protestants. Right? It's something like this. It, uh, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, right? he was uh, referring to the, the, what it represents, right? the symbolic uh, uh, representation. It's something like this. You know, when we uh, meet some people, uh, you know, some strangers or whatnot, and then as we are getting to, to know each other, and then say, as we say, talk about our family, right? And then we want to just, not only it's not enough to just kind of talk about them, we want to show them something. So then we, you know, pull out our cell phone, right? And then hopefully we would have a family picture, whether it be the siblings or spouse or just kids, family picture or something. And hey, this is my family, right? When you say that, and then when we uh, tell that to uh, a stranger, somebody who does not really know, know me or know us or our families, what we're saying is that picture itself, it's not the literal like family, right? Because they're not there. But the picture represents, right? It accurately describes, it shows right, what they look like, right? And how many kids we have, what have you, like what kind of like, spouse we have, right? It represents. That's what, we, that's what we understand. As Protestants, unlike the Catholics, that Jesus is present with us spiritually. His presence is real, but spiritually, not in a physical way. The Catholics... They teach that the Christ is present as the substance of the bread and wine. As, as the bread and wine is miraculously, miraculously transformed right, uh, into the, the body of Christ and the blood. And they call it transubstantiation. Right? Um, so what they teach is when we are taking it, uh, the Catholics teach and believe when they take the elements, that, that it literally, even though it has a form, it looks like the, uh, the bread or the piece of bread or, or, or the cup, but it's literally the actual flesh of Jesus and actual blood of Christ. And that's what they believe. Right? The Luther, during the, you know, as we know, uh, Luther, uh, Martin Luther was uh, one of the leading reformers. 
And he said that to him, he believed that the Christ's body and blood are present in, 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 the, in, in the element. Uh, it is under, it is over, it is with, it's everywhere, right? Um, the, the form of the bread and wine uh, remains, it, the form remains, but the body of Christ, the blood of Christ is in and in of it. So it's all around it, right? So it's, it's a little kind of confusing what that really means. How, but he doesn't go so far because he wanted to make a, a break from the Catholic teaching, right? Telling them that it's literally, it turns into a body of, a, a body of flesh of blood, uh, flesh of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. He doesn't, it does, he doesn't go so far as to say that, but it is all over. It's all around it. All, it's inside it, everywhere, right? So it's called consubstantiation. So the Lutheran church now, they still believe that, and that's, they are. That's, that's how they observe it. That's how they believe that Jesus is there. Uh, Jesus is present. But we are in the Reformed tra- tradition, and we agree with Calvin, right, who taught that the bread and wine remained unchanged. It's actually the bread, and it is actually the wine. It doesn't, the substance does not really change as we take those. But the Holy Spirit raises the believer through the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, through, uh, through our faith, to enjoy the presence of Christ in a, in a real and glorious way. That as we take the, the communion together, His presence is real. It's actually there. So Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and these are were the well-known reform, uh, the leaders of the Reformation, you know, they got together to join their forces, but they could not, there's one sticking point was this issue of how are we to understand the presence of Christ? Because Luther said, as I said, this thing, Calvin said this, Zwingli said, well, Jesus is already like glorified in heaven, so he's not actually present as we take the communion together. So they could not come to an agreement on this point, on this sticking, uh, this issue, and they eventually went their separate ways. That's why you know, there's Lutheran, right, and the Calvinist, like, you know, the Reformed tradition, and Zwingli, and the, uh, different, like, traditions kind of parted ways because they could not come to an agreement on this. But at the table, we give thanks to Christ for the finished work of the atonement. So as, as we are in the Reformed tradition, we believe, and we, uh, we, uh, we agree with Calvin that in the Lord's Supper, it, the, the elements that we take do not, the, the substance all of a sudden change to literal flesh and blood of Christ. But what we believe is his presence is really real and here in a glor- glorious way. And that's what we uh, believe. The Lord's Supper, um, it looks, it has a three components. It looks in the past to his uh, atoning death what Christ has done, he, how he was sacrificed and he died on the cross. So as one, one aspect of the Lord's Supper is that we uh, look to the past and remember what Christ has done for us. But also, it's not just, it just does not stay there. We also, when we, every time we take the Lord's Supper, it also looks to the present, to our corporate uh, participation in him through faith, that we are saying when we take the, blood, uh, uh, take the, uh, the communion together, we also say, hey, we are one. We are one with him. We are united with him. 
that there is no separation anymore, that we belong to Christ. And that's, that's what we are proclaiming every time we take the communion together. We are affirming, reaffirming our union with him and the fact that we are one with one another, that we are one body. And um, also, not only that, it also reminds us, it looks to the future. Every time we take the Lord's uh, Supper, we also are looking to the future, reminding ourselves that there is a, the banqueting table. And when Jesus comes back, you know, he talks about it in some of the, the parables, that there will be a banqueting table, that there will be, a, uh, be just an amazing just feast. And when Christ comes back, and when he makes everything right, we all will celebrate with him. We will be with him. We will not be even, we will, that the sin will be gone completely. We don't know what it looks like, right? We will be free from the presence of sin. Right now, you know, we are still struggling with sin. Sin is all around us. So we don't know what it's like. But when Jesus comes back and makes everything right, the way it was supposed to be at the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, that's what it's going to be. And we're going to have that amazing feast with him forever and ever. And we will worship him forever. Free from sin. The power of sin. The presence of sin. Right. So when we, every time we take the Lord's communion, we are expressing our faith in that. That we believe that Christ has died for us. And we also believe that we are one with him in the present we are also saying uh, without, uh, the communion, by taking the communion, we are expressing our faith that Jesus will come back and will make everything right. And now we will have that eternal celebration, enjoying his presence, worshiping him without any hindrance. That's what we are saying. That's what we are doing every time we take the Lord's Supper. It encourages us, it encourages us to remain faithful in our daily walk. We do this to remember our Lord's suffering on our behalf and also in anticipation of his return. Lord, come, come, Lord Jesus. We are waiting for you to come and make everything right. There's so, you know, there's injustice everywhere. There are so, things that are so wrong, so much pain. But we are saying, but we are still looking to you, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, make everything right. With this understanding, let's look at what was going on at Corinth. There was a report of divisions in the church, as we've been looking, right? And so he's heard it. So in verse 18, right, that's what he says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I, and I believe, believe it in part. Right. And... Um, you know, this report of divisions, and this is a really hindrance to, the, to God's glory when church is divided, and there's a report of it. So in verse 19, he says, for there, and he believes it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be rec uh, recognized. So this verse, it can be uh, understood in two different ways. Uh, one way is that Paul is saying that it is, uh, it's not until factions arise that those who are genuine can be known, right? Uh, literally, it means those who pass the test, those who are genuine. Because there is a division, there are some factions among it, that's when we come to understand by sovereign will 
sovereign plan of God that even God uses in his sovereign purpose, divine purpose, God even uses a human flaws and sins to accomplish or advance his will and his purpose. So maybe he's saying, even among there's divisions among you, that God still, the, good, the one good thing that comes out is that we may know that who are genuine and who are not, right? So that's one way to understand this verse. Or another way to understand it is that maybe Paul is being sarcastic or he's using irony here, you know, trying to make the Corinthians see how futile and absurd their infighting is, you know, arguing who is genuine, who is not genuine. So, oh, I follow Paul. Oh, I follow Paulus. I follow, you know, Peter. As, as they're just, there's an infighting going on, how they're just boasting about they know better, that I am better than you, I, I know more, right? And so a lot of this inv- uh, infighting going on. So maybe Paul is kind of being a little sarcastic in this way. Oh, so, you know, I hear that, I, I believe it because you know, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Right? He's being a little, like, sarcastic here. So it could be uh, understood in uh, both ways. Um, um, so we, 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 I don't know for sure how to understand it, but the, 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 the bottom line is that whatever the case may be, they are not doing, observing it right, even though they have all the appearance of uh, doing the Lord's Supper. In verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, Contrary to their belief, their mishandling of the observance has turned it into something quite different from what it should be, right? Their intention was to eat the Lord's Supper, but it was profaned by their gluttony, drunkenness, and their discrimination. In verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk that there is discrimination. Just because we have communion does not mean that we are actually doing it right. Following the, following the observance, just because they, they've done that, they were doing the Lord's Supper, but Paul is, in a way, saying, no, you guys are profaning this, this sacrament. Because the Lord's Supper symbolizes the unity of the believers. You know, chapter 10, verse 17, it says this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We are one bread. We are one body. You know, in, uh, as we said in the, the Westminster Con- uh, Confession at the end, uh, it said, um, can we turn there? Yeah, the, at the very end it says, uh, the last couple uh, lines, it says, to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and... The Lord's Supper is to be a bond with each other as members of his mystical body. So the Lord's Supper is to, be, uh, to represent the bond and the pledge to our communion with him. And not just that, it doesn't uh, just end there. It's, oh, yeah, I am one with Christ. No, every time the, the Lord's Supper represents our bond and pledge of our communion with one another as the body of Christ. We are one. That's what we are saying every time. That's what it's supposed to represent, signify every time we take the Lord's communion. And yet here, the people were discriminated. Some people, they bring their own meal, and some people just go ahead and eat while someone else goes hungry. Their division 
and the discrimination made a mockery of the sacrament. The early church held this uh, agape love feast in connection with the Lord's Supper. Maybe uh, the meal was like something kind of closer to probably like modern day, like potluck dinner, right? We just bring food together, right? But because of their cliques and divisions, the well-off Corinthians apparently did not share with the less fortunate among them at the feasts where the Lord's Supper was celebrated. The selfish and divisive behavior openly contradicted the, uh, the poor, uh, contradicted the, the meaning of the ceremony it, it, it was meant uh, of the ceremony because it was meant for unity and the bond among fellow brothers and sisters. It was not only a union with Christ, but our union with one another as body of Christ. But the self, uh, selfishness and disregard for the poor prevailed. And Paul is saying that that is not the Lord's Supper. You may think it is because you say it is, but it really is not, right? Just because people gather together, oh, let's just celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's eat. Just because you did that doesn't mean that it was truly the Lord's Supper because there were divisions. People were divided, and they didn't really care for the poor. So Paul is saying that is not the Lord's Supper. Outward appearance and performance that looks like the Lord's Supper does not make it one. When true meaning is not followed. And it's just like any other Christian uh, discipline. Just because we close our eyes and utter some words about God or what we need does not make it a true prayer to God. We have to have the right heart before Him. Our attitude, our mindset has to be in the right way in accordance with the will of God, living the right life. And Isaiah talks about uh, the true fasting. Just because we do not eat meal, you know, abstain from eating food, it's not fasting when you are not living the right life. All these outward things that we do. Just because we open up the Bible and read, but then the minute we close it, we forget about it, that's not really the right, uh, the, the, uh, the devotional time. Just because we close our eyes and utter some words, it's not a true prayer. Outward appearance does not make it a true discipline. And Paul's rebuke is strong in verse 22. What? Do you, not, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Wow. He's saying, when you, divide, uh, when you uh, are engaged in divisions, forming cliques, and you discriminate against the poor, people, those who have nots, He's saying you are despising the church and you are humiliating the poor among you. In a, in a secular world, you know, his concern is with the humiliation of the poor. In a, in a secular world, in uh, Paul's days as well as today's society, the poor are the marginalized and they are the, uh, the vulnerable. And those people who have power and money, they take advantage of those people. And the, the, the Bible rebukes the unjust ways of the, the rich. Not because they are rich, but because how they treat and exploit the poor. Because, and that is the way of the world. People out there in the world, right, they try to take advantage of one another, and especially people who do not have a voice, who do not have power. 
They try to take advantage of it. That's the way of the world. However, the church of God is called to be different and countercultural. We are not to emulate or follow the ways of the world, how it operates, how it relates to people. Just because you have money, just because you have power, just because you have voice, you disregard the people who do not have those. No, that's not the way it's supposed to. And yet, the Corinthians, they were just following the ways of the world, patterns of the world, basically ignoring and humiliating the poor. Now that we belong to Christ, born again by the Spirit of God, we are not to go by the worldly standard or the practices, but by the Word of God. God's standard is to be our standard. And that means that we renounce our selfish ways or renounce our cliques and care for those people who are in need. The reason why Paul has a strong word for the Corinthians in this matter is because the well-to-do Corinthian Christians humiliated the poor in their presence instead of serving them. They just said, hey, hey, I'm just going to just stay with my clique. Imagine a church gathering with a meal. The rich come with their bounties and eat among, uh, eat among them and gorge themselves until they cannot eat anymore, right? And say, whoa, you know, what a good meal, right? I'm stuffed. It was a good company, right? We celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Man, I'm good. You know, what a life, right? I'm blessed. I'm with a great, you know, just good company of people that I love to spend time with. And the meal was good. Everything was good. Life is good. Christian life is good. All the while, the poor sat on the corner with their stomach growling because they had nothing to eat. Paul says, you despise the church of God and humiliated those who have nothing. You may think you participated in the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't. It was profane and sacrilegious. It is to symbolize that we are in it together and you acted nothing like it when you ignore the poor and the needy among you. What good is it if you follow all the right steps when the body of Christ is not being edified, when people who are in need still go unnoticed, ignoring their need and their cries, and say, hey, I'm good because I'm following the, the practice. He emphasizes Jesus' selfless giving of his life on their behalf and uh, contrasted with their self-centeredness at the very feet that remembers his selfless giving. So that's why in verses 23 through 26, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup uh, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He reminds people. That's what it's about. That Jesus selflessly gave himself while we were yet enemies of God, rebelling against him, cursing God, running away from him, doing our own things. That Jesus came and gave himself up selflessly. And now, Corinthians, you guys come together 
to celebrate the selfless giving of Christ's sacrifice he has made on our behalf, and you are being selfish, you eat your own meal, you get drunk, you enjoy yourself with a clique that you are, you, you are part of, and say, oh, that was a good Lord's Supper. That's not right. Their behavior at this remembrance betrays Jesus, whose own supper they were celebrating. Outward uh, following doesn't matter. It's sacrilegious when we do not truly understand the deep meaning behind it, understanding behind it. Quickly, um, the second point is, the last point is that the consequences and the uh, corrections. So what are the, uh, the consequences of this disorder? You know, was it that big of a deal? Um, and it talks about it in verses 27 through uh, 34. Whoever, there, wh- whoever therefore eats, the, uh, eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So um, and let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself, right? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You know, in verse 27, in an unworthy manner, uh, he's talking about irreverent and selfish manner that characterized some at their uh, agape, unruly agape supper, right? Just being really selfish and being really divisive. So he you know, instructs them to, to examine themselves. Let a man examine himself. A person should test the attitude of his own heart and actions and his awareness of the significance of the supper and therefore making it a spiritual means of grace. And I think it can be applied in different ways, but what we have to be careful about is that, it, it, especially verse 30, we should, it will be a misreading of verse 30. You know, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That it will be a misreading for us to think that, to make a conclusion that this means that God routinely brings illness and death to Christians who partake the, uh, the Lord's Supper with the spiritual failings. Oh, is that, oh does that mean like uh, some of the people, you know, they're going to just die they're gonna, by taking the Lord's Supper? Um, that's not what it's really saying. The problem in the uh, Corinth was much more specific and serious because they were engaging in tearing apart the body of Christ. And they were really humiliating the poor among them. So because they were tearing about the unity of the Christian body represented by that one bread, right? That he's saying that that's why some of the people in the Corinthian church fell ill, some have passed away. Right? It just shows how seriously God takes when it comes to the unity of the body. In its context in the Corinthian church, they were engaging in disunity, division, tearing apart, humiliating the poor. So in that, because of in that specific context in the Corinthian church, God says some of them, that's why some of you have fallen, uh, you know, basically passed away, right? Don't make it, we cannot make a, we cannot wrench them out and make like it's a general like principle everywhere at all times. But it does show how God takes the unity of the body so seriously. We are not to take it lightly. Oh, we, if we just cause division among us, if we just talk, you know, backstabbing people, if we uh, gossip, 
tearing somebody down within our church, within the body of Christ, that God will not take it lightly, as some of the people were doing in the Corinthian church. The warning in verse 29, right? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, uh, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning the body, it, it, it refers to this failure to maintain the unity of the church and the, as the body of Christ. Because some of the believers in the Corinth were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that, would, that destroyed the unity it represents, God had brought this judgment upon the community so that right, he, there will not be... But you know, he looks at it as a discipline in verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. At least it's also a grace of God, that God graciously disciplined people in the church because they were, not, uh, they were uh, profaning, desecrating the, 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 the holy communion. So he, he disciplined them so that they may not be condemned with the rest of the world. Right. So as God's redeemed p- uh, children, we are disciplined. Just as a human parent disciplines his child so that we may repent of our sins and grow in our grace. And he says, so then, my brothers, in verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, serve one another, to look around and see how we can promote unity. If you come together in the Lord's Supper or anything, anything that we do, if it brings down the unity of the church, be careful. Examine yourself and what we are about to do. Are we going to tear down the, the body of Christ, bring it down, cause division and conflict? Or are we going to build up? Are we going to edify the body of Christ? May that be our uh, attitude every time we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper or any other activity that we may engage in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you at this time, and Lord, we uh, turn to you. Um, at times, Lord, we kind of go, go along with uh, Christian disciplines. We kind of, we may appear to be engaging in the disciplines, whether it be praying, fasting, doing devotion, being in solitude, or observing baptism, the Lord's Supper. We may have the appearance, but with you, Lord, what you look at is our heart's attitude, what our heart is really like inside, not outside. We may judge people by the outward appearance, how we may come across, but you look at the core of our hearts, what's truly in our hearts. So help us, God, to examine our own hearts first, our life first, before we engage in Lord's Supper, or any other uh, activities, Lord. For you look at our hearts. May our hearts be in the right place to love you, to honor you, to glorify you, to, to know you better, to understand what it means to be part of the body, how we are to promote and edify and build up the body instead of tearing it down. So if we have engaged and, and tearing down the body, may we repent that we will turn from our way, wicked ways that we may do all we can to build up the body of Christ because you died 
for this body, precious body. So allow us to really uh, live a life that will build up the church in all our ways. And we thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.